You don't need a study to tell you that aging and fatigue go hand in hand. Nevertheless, my friends at Nutritional Therapeutics, makers of NT Factor, point to 16 studies, all peer-reviewed and published in medical journals, showing that NT Factor can reduce fatigue, while at the same time, age-related changes in the cells are reversed. For 30 years, the makers of NT Factor have worked to improve our health spans by focusing on the mitochondria, the energy powerhouses of our cells. Their science shows that NT Factor, which I don't go a day without and recommend to my patients, improves our energy and prevents the deterioration that accompanies aging. It promises that our day-to-day lives will be improved, and they keep proving it in studies that include placebo-controlled trials, both in the academic institutions and in medical practices like mine. You can find NT Factor at your favorite health food store or online retailer, or to order direct, go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Don't let tiredness and fatigue rob your senior years. Invest regularly in the anti-aging benefit of NT Factor at ntfactor.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking about chronic pain, and we're talking about an innovative approach to chronic pain that is not so much uh, physical medicine. You know, we have many modalities uh, at our disposal. We can give people uh, all kinds of drugs. Uh, there are many categories of drugs that address pain, but uh, often only uh, incompletely, and often with uh, the downside that people become hooked on medications that uh, are addictive. Uh, Also, uh, some of the medications uh, tend to dull the senses. People feel brain fog and experience cognitive problems while all these medications. It's a big problem. And literally uh, thousands and thousands of people are dying in America. It's actually thought to be one of the big causes for our reversal in uh, estimated lifespan. You know, we thought that we were just going to march through the decades, uh, increasing lifespan uh, until we all become centenarians. Well, Americans' average lifespan is actually declining, and it's in part due to uh, uh, opioid addiction and deaths of despair, often linked to chronic pain. So this is a very, very important subject. And uh, who among us uh, doesn't suffer from uh, some form of pain? Uh, Dr. David Clark, our guest, is president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, the PPDA. And you can find out more at endchronicpain.org. They've got uh, a self-assessment questionnaire to see if there's a component to your pain, uh, which is PPD-related. So, uh, Dr. Clark, uh, it seems to me that uh, a lot of patients uh, with chronic pain uh, maybe going on kind of a like a wild goose chase. So they go from specialist to specialist. Uh, they try all kinds of different remedies, both uh, you know conventional remedies, and then they look to the alternative world for remedies for their pain using all kinds of different modalities. Um, and is it possible that that simply reinforces uh, a cycle of pain? That pain is is almost kind of a uh, a rut in the brain circuitry or a learned behavior. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, when you are focusing on the pain, um, you are using circuits in your brain that are actually physically different uh, than the circuits uh, in the brains of people that don't have these conditions. There are a number of uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging studies now that show that people with conditions like fibromyalgia or irritable bowel or, um, um, you know, symptoms 
similar uh, conditions, somatization disorder is another one, actually have um, different brain circuits uh, than people that don't have these conditions. And the more you're focusing just on your physical symptoms, the more you're reinforcing those uh, circuits. Um, but we now have um, uh, a randomized controlled trial called the Boulder Back Pain Study that used uh, psychological techniques, what I call pain relief psychology, uh, to treat people who had back pain for an average of 10 years. And they only got a month of treatment, two sessions a week for four weeks. And their pain scores dropped from an average of four uh, down to an average of one just in that short space of time. And they did functional MRIs um, on the brains of those subjects and found that they physically changed uh, in response uh, to the psychotherapy. So uh, we're seeing real um, anatomic uh, differences uh, when the new treatment techniques are applied. And uh, I should also add that uh, benefit that they got in their pain scores was sustained uh, for 11 months. They didn't get any more psychotherapy treatment, uh, but the pain score stayed down for the full 11 months uh, after that of the study. I, and I think that that's important because uh, this is an unseen uh causation for chronic pain, at least from the standpoint of structure, because, you know, you as a gastroenterologist, if somebody is experiencing uh, GI pain, uh, you know, you might do a colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy and find that they have uh, ulcerations in the walls of their large intestine, and that's the culprit lesion that needs to be healed, or maybe a blood test might reveal a high level of uh, C-reactive protein, which indicates inflammation. But without these uh, traditional markers, uh, we need new ways of, of looking at that. So uh, what's the biological plausibility for this theory? Because there are different parts of the uh, nervous system that may be responsible. The amygdala, which is kind of the primitive brain, the fear center of the brain. There's the autonomic nervous system. Um, how do they figure into this? Yeah, that's that's what these fMRI studies are beginning to show is that the uh, the circuits that connect these different parts of the brain are different in people uh, that ha are suffering from these conditions. Uh, they're also different in people who went through uh, adverse childhood experiences uh, as well. So uh, there's a real uh, physiologic cause for this, uh, which reemphasizes the point that uh, these symptoms are real. They're not just in, in people's heads. They're in their brain. Um, there's real changes there. But the good news is that uh, we have treatment techniques now that uh, several different closely related types of pain relief psychology. Um, and what they have in common is they are going for relief of the symptom, unlike cognitive behavioral therapy, which essentially is trying to help you live with your condition. Mm -hmm. The new pain relief psychology is trying to alleviate it. Uh, and it's doing that by going after um, the stress-related personality traits that often uh, develop out of an ACEs experience in the past. They're looking at the um, any triggers that are going on in your life at the moment. Uh, they're making sure that you don't have uh, an undiagnosed mental health condition like depression, anxiety, or, or post-traumatic stress. Um, you know, very simply, you know, the first thing that I do uh, in evaluating a patient is looking for stress in your life at the moment. You know, is there something that's going on right now that is chronologically linked to the, the pattern of your symptoms? Um, and all of these things, when we uh, uncover 
remember them. Uh, we can almost always address them successfully. And then people see that their physical symptoms begin to respond to that. And that gives everybody confidence uh, that we're on the right track. Uh, the utilization of healthcare, uh, whether it's alternative or whether it's Western-based medicine, uh, starts to go down because people can see that uh, uh, they're on the right path to healing. And this is a non-pharmacological approach. I mean, traditionally, uh, psychiatrists and, you know, regular doctors will sometimes treat pain syndromes uh, with medication. They say, well, okay, uh, let's acknowledge that there's a psychosomatic component. We'll just give an antidepressant. You know, we'll give uh, we'll give uh, something that works on nerve pain like uh, Lyrica. Um, is it do you invoke an all of the above approach or are you discouraging dependency on drugs? Um, I don't object to using medications uh, when they're indicated. You know, if somebody is suffering from severe depression and we discuss the pros and cons of uh, medication for that, some people will say, no, I don't want to use that. Other people will say, yes, I'm really at the end of my rope and I'd like to have something to, to give me support while I'm going through the um pain relief psychology process. Uh, and I'm okay with that um, either way. I look at the medications as kind of a crutch. Um, we are uh, not using that as our main modality of treating the patient. We need to go after the stresses, uh, uncover them, uh, begin treating them. But if a patient needs uh, the crutch of a medication for uh, you know, six, nine months while they're going through the psychology process, uh, I have no objection to that at all. There's some work being done with uh, ketamine uh, or things like MDMA uh, or even uh, psychedelics like psilocybin, which kind of designed to uh, create a window of opportunity for brain plasticity to kind of allow the brain circuitry to uh, be more malleable. Uh, is, is that something that you acknowledge can be of help or is your work completely uh, around uh if non non drug modalities well we're using the pain relief psychology to uh, make those neuroplastic changes you know change the circuits in the brain but mm -hmm. um, the medications uh, that you mentioned um, they do seem to have the ability of facilitating neuroplastic change and you know just working in this field and encountering patients um, I do have uh, some anecdotal uh, reports that have been given to me of people getting a lot of benefit from these. Um, that's not the same as a randomized controlled trial, obviously. Mm -hmm. We've got randomized, several randomized controlled trials of pain relief psychology now, not only from Boulder, but also from Harvard and the West Los Angeles VA and from a study in Detroit. And, and there are more that are ongoing right now. And they're, they're very successful. So the evidence for things like ketamine and MDMA uh, and psilocybin is nowhere near that level. Mm -hmm. We don't know about the, uh, the risks and benefits. We don't right. know may exactly the right kind of patient uh, that should be chosen for this. Uh, but there's, there's uh, definitely reason to uh, pursue further work on them. I'm, I'm supportive of uh, more research with those. And the popularization of these things may lead people to uh, do a DIY approach uh, with access to uh, medications that uh, may not be warranted or under unsupervised conditions where uh, people might expose themselves to, to risk, right? 
Yeah, as you know, the history of medicine is is full of um, pharmaceuticals that looked extremely promising uh, in their early trials. And then when uh, subjected to the gold standard of a randomized controlled trial, they they didn't turn out to be um, quite so promising. So I'm um, basically holding off on uh, final judgment around those. I, I think the day will come when we are able to identify a certain uh, subset of patients uh, for whom these are appropriate. But I'm waiting to see what that's going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, this is so promising uh, and so relatively inexpensive. It would seem that this is something that should be embraced by the medical establishment. I'm thinking of the vast uh, VA hospital system where in part, I trained and where the majority of patients were suffering from pain syndromes and the amount of money and the amount of disability that pain is causing, uh, especially uh, uh, ex-military personnel, uh, would warrant uh, embracing this this approach. Is there are you making any inroads in uh, having them uh, integrate these techniques in their pain programs? Yes, it's really uh, starting to happen. Uh, you know, people that become aware of this uh, and learn about this and begin using it uh, in their personal practices. Um, once you see these sources of stress in your patients, you can't unsee it. And you are turning a population that in the past would make uh, primary care doctors beat their heads against the wall and all of a sudden they become very rewarding to work with. You see people who have been ill for years sometimes uh, getting better. Uh, one of my, my patients, just just talking about the, the cost here, he, he had been ill for 55 years. I, I saw him back in the days of paper charts and volume three of his paper chart was uh, three inches thick. Uh, full of you know negative diagnostic tests and unsuccessful treatment trials, and uh, by using this approach, uh, uncovering the stress that he had, which in his case was physical abuse as a boy, uh, and he was 74 years old, and it was still making his stomach hurt. He was cured in 30 days. I sent him to a, uh, a support group uh, slash class uh, that I had available at that time, and he just met with that small group and shared his story and uh, got a lot of support from those people, and that was all it needed. Uh, I mean, he was uh, cured uh, in less than 30 days. Um, so people who are working in healthcare systems that are at financial risk for doing a poor job with this population. They are seeing the benefits of this both uh, therapeutically and uh, from a cost standpoint and starting to use it. One, one group that I taught started with three doctors and uh, three years later, there are now 70 doctors all using these techniques uh, in that community. Uh, you mentioned the VA. Now, there was a randomized trial at the West Los Angeles VA of older male veterans, uh, mostly men, uh, averaging 73 years of age, very tough group. I mean, you are not going to get anywhere uh, if you throw psychobabble at people like that. Um, they got 42% of them uh, to achieve their pain relief goal um, compared to only 5% that achieved the goal with cognitive behavioral therapy. They were using, the, the way they got the 42% better um, was using pain relief psychology. So it's um, 
um, the tipping point is coming. Let's put it that way. So a question, a practical question is, how do you overcome patients' resistance to the notion uh, that their pain may not be, in quotation marks, real? Because some patients may be very guarded about this. They may say, Doc, are you suggesting that uh, my complaints aren't legitimate, that I don't have a bad back, that I don't have, uh, you know, some serious uh, wiring problem in my intestines, uh, that, you know, on and on it goes. Uh, you know, they've been given sort of a mechanistic model for their pain, uh, and they may cling to it. And that there's a sort of a stigma attached with, to the notion that uh, somehow the brain is involved in mediating pain signals. So, you know, as neutral as we are about that, because, you know, we're looking for practical solutions. We don't really care about, uh, you know, the, the stigma or the values associated with one or another style of treatment. Uh, patients may, may resist that. Uh, do you encounter that? And you know, how do you overcome it? Yeah, it's the number one question I get from my physician audiences is how do I um, mention this possibility without the patient throwing me out of the room? Right. Uh, and it's important to, to point out that symptoms generated by the brain are every bit as real as symptoms from any other cause. And, you know, I'll mention uh, the patients that I've had who've been in the hospital and the one who was getting uh, morphine around the clock. Uh, these are you know, it, it is astounding. And I, I had to go through that process myself when I first found out about this. Uh, it was hard to believe that your brain could produce symptoms at this level of severity. Um, and I say that to patients. I say, you know, when I first heard about this, I didn't believe it either. Um, but, you know, after 40 years and 7,000 patients, uh, I'm, you know, absolutely a believer. And uh, what's good about this is that um, there's hope um, that, you know, people, like I say, who've been ill for years or even decades uh, can get better. Um, and when people hear that, um, they are willing to, um, you know, travel with me down that road, do a, a stress evaluation, uh, begin some of the treatment measures, um, and see if there's a response to it. And it's when people start to get better that they become convinced. And one, one of the lines that a colleague told me about is a patient of his said, uh, do you mean um, that this pain is not in my head, it's in my brain? And the, my colleague said, absolutely. Hmm. And that made a huge difference to that patient. It's like a reframing of the of the whole situation. Uh, yeah, what I, do, what I do sometimes with patients, you know, when I'm trying to encourage them to embrace a new modality is I say, look, you know, in your quest to get well, it's like walking down a corridor where there are a lot of doors. And in your quest to get well, uh, you need to open a lot of doors. And some doors may yield a fruitful solution, create progress. Uh, other doors may be not worthwhile. But you got to open those doors and someone who's subject to a lifetime of chronic pain uh, surely would be motivated to open some doors, you know, whether or not they're going to get uh, a full resolution or a successful outcome. Well, that may depend on the circumstances, but it's certainly worth opening those doors. And I would encourage my patients to examine uh, this option. Yeah, another idea that helps people is uh, when they are ACE survivors, when they've had adversity in childhood, is 
I'll ask them to imagine themselves uh, as a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home. And what they're doing is they are watching a child they care about, either their own child or some other child to whom they're connected, trying to cope with that childhood home. And they have to watch that kid try to deal with whatever it was the patient had to deal with for a week or so. And how would the patient feel um, watching that happen? Because many of my patients, when they think about their own experience, um, they're minimizing how yep. much they had to cope with. But when they think about their own kid uh, having to deal with the same stuff, uh, you know, their facial expression often changes dramatically. And it engenders uh, self-compassion, which I think is an element uh, missing uh, from a lot of people's personalities, is the ability to step outside of themselves and, you know, not be uh, continuously uh, critical of themselves uh, for being weak, vulnerable, etc. That's one of the uh, very common long-term personality traits uh, that are generated by an ACEs experience, absolutely. I just want to ask you, you know, uh, you were, you know, you had uh, conventional training and, you know, went on uh, beyond uh, just uh, basic training in internal medicine to gastroenterology, presumably had a successful career as a gastroenterologist. Uh, Did some of your professional colleagues uh, kind of uh, dismiss this a little bit as, uh, you know, maybe Dave's going off the deep end a little bit here. You know, he's abandoning, uh, you know, successful practice of gastroenterology to go into this kind of woo-woo area. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, in I worked for a large HMO for a number of years. And in my early career, when I was still learning how to do this, it took me four or five years to sort of climb the learning curve of getting uh, reasonably competent at this. But as soon as I felt like, you know, I'm getting really good results on a consistent basis here, um, I got the Doctor of the Year award uh, from from my colleagues in this very large HMO hmm. at, at age, age 37, which, you know, it was an award that was usually given to a much more uh, senior physician. Hmm. Uh, and that that was uh, a surprise. It's and very validating, after, yeah. After that, um, people started sending me patients who didn't have gastrointestinal <laughs> problems. They would send me these mystery patients, you know, gentlemen with uh, unexplained back pain for 25 plus years, uh, another gentleman with total body itching for three years, um, you know, all kinds of um, unusual stuff. There was a gynecologist who sent me uh, patients with pelvic pain. Um, that had negative diagnostic evaluations. And he would schedule those patients for a laparoscopy um, the week after their appointment with me uh, so that it would be, you know, he'd be ready to do the laparoscopy if I didn't find anything uh, psychophysiologic going on. And I don't think a single one of those patients uh, that this particular GYN doctor sent ever got their laparoscopy because every single one of them had a psychophysiologic cause for their pelvic pain. So you became a kind of a doctor of last resort for some of these uh, physicians who are grateful to you that you took care of their very uh, dead-end patients. Yeah, I mean, there were some uh, administrators who thought, you know, why are you doing this? You don't even have a psychology credential. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the results were so good that, you know, there were you know, it was another administrator who said, I'm going to give you 45-minute appointments for these patients because your results are so right. good. Can't do it um, in 10 you know, minutes. You deserve yeah. to have this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 
How do you find a qualified practitioner? Because, you know, I, I embrace these ideas. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very receptive to this, uh, but I'm not sure I'm qualified to, you know, administer the kind of deep and comprehensive uh, process that's required to unravel some of these patients. How do you find someone who, who you know, like yourself? I mean, you're not a one-off. You, know, you actually head up an organization of like-minded physicians. How do you find someone who, who is qualified? Yeah, we have a directory on the endchronicpain.org website of um, clinicians, mostly mental health professionals, uh, but there are some uh, MDs uh, on there as well who have uh, embraced um, this approach. Um, but I think for most of the um, clinicians uh, out there, um, if you're not feeling like you're um, 100% able to do this with patients. Um, you don't have to do um, uh, the full diagnostic and treatment uh, process. If you can just um, rule out the biomedical process that's going on, ask a few questions about uh, stress in the person's life at the moment, ask them about stress when they were uh, growing up, uh, make sure they don't have depression, anxiety, or PTSD. And then, you know, if, if you're feeling like you've got enough evidence to point the patient in this direction, there are today, which I dearly wish I had had available when I first started, but there are today lots of resources for people. There are self-help books uh, that are evidence-based that and you wrote one, we list way, on our website. They can't I find did, anything uh, yeah. wrong. They, they, it's called they, they Can't Find Anything Wrong, and that's uh, still uh, available. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's selling more copies than ever, in fact. Um, but um, there are, you know, I have, you know, if that particular book doesn't uh, work for a particular patient, there are a number of others that are take complementary approaches that uh, can work for a patient uh, if mine does not. Um, there is an app called Curable, which um, is based on um, all of the concepts we've been talking about today. The creators of that app uh, interviewed uh, me and uh, at least a dozen of my colleagues to get all our best ideas and put them into this wonderful uh, user interface. Uh, we have uh, recorded conferences on the website. We've got two uh, webinar-based courses, including one that just released last week um, that are jargon-free uh, so that uh, even people who are not professionals uh, can benefit from those. Uh, lots and lots of ways that people can uh, help themselves. It's only a, a small fraction that actually need a uh, PPD-trained uh, psychotherapist to get through this. Wow. Okay. So lots of resources available at endchronicpain.org. And uh, a timely reminder is that, uh, and I actually didn't realize this because I, you know, just scheduled this podcast, but then uh, I saw on endchronicpain.org that you're offering a free webinar that's going to drop on in the evening of February, um, February 1st. 1st. Yeah. Right. That's, uh, I guess this Thursday, I believe. Okay. Yes. Um, and uh, again, that's going to be uh, two o'clock Pacific, uh, five o'clock Eastern. It's going to be for an hour. We're going to have people uh, able to ask questions uh, of me and uh, possibly some of my colleagues are going to drop in there as well uh, so that people can get uh, their own questions answered. I, and I'm it's 100% free. I'm sure that'll that'll gain a lot of traction among our intelligent medicine listeners because uh, uh, they're likely 
to either suffer from uh, pain syndrome or know someone who is likely to benefit from this type of approach. So great stuff. Uh, Dr. David Clark, I want to thank you very much for joining us. And I really want to applaud your uh, uh, innovative approach uh, that I think is going to bring relief to a lot of people. Uh, It's high time that we recognized uh, the important role that psychophysiologic disorders PPDs uh, have on uh, the uh, vast landscape of pain syndromes that Americans, people across the world experience. So great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate your interest in spreading the word. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I want to thank you for listening to the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app and get new episodes automatically downloaded every weekday. And please give us a rating and review. It truly helps new people discover Intelligent Medicine. The Intelligent Medicine Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. Finally, please visit drhoffman.com and discover everything intelligent medicine has to offer, including frequently updated, unbiased health news and fully vetted product and supplement recommendations. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I've partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired. Always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com.